0: Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts share valuable insights, answer questions, and tell some real-world stories that'll get you thinking about how you can tweak your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Without further ado, here is yours truly, Bill Widener, and this episode's guests. On Realty Speak today, I am psyched to be talking with Matt Hall and Eli Weiss, who without a doubt are two undeniable experts here to talk about a very, very hot topic, development of affordable housing. This past February of 2019, Oregon became the first state in the nation to pass a statewide rent control law. Then in June, New York passed the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act of 2019. And now just this month, September 2019, California has gone there too. Isn't California usually first at everything? Guess not this time. The enactment of these laws is evidence that there is a need for increased momentum in the development of affordable housing nationwide, and I'm thinking that doing so may turn out to be a better solution than forcing private industry landlords to foot the bill with draconian rent regulation laws. Matt, Eli, thanks for joining us today on Realty Speak to chat about this hot topic. Thank you, Bill. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me today. Matt, you are a partner of your law firm, Goldstein Hall. Founded in 2006, the firm specializes in affordable housing and community development. Eli, Joy Construction was founded in 1994. And since you joined the firm in 2007, you have focused the organization on the development of affordable housing. Guys, please share with our listeners a little bit about why and how affordable housing became your wheelhouse. Eli? Sure. At Joy Construction, we
1: have a practice that does market rate rentals. We've done condos. We've done hotels. But the majority of our practice, both historically and currently, is still affordable housing. My background, like Matt, I'm also an attorney, but I never really practiced. I worked for the city of New York for three years, first doing land acquisitions for the city for various municipal projects, and then transferring over to the New York City Housing Development Corporation, where I worked on financing affordable housing projects for the city. What attracted me was my experience in working on it from the public sector. And when you look at development, the first thing that people always think is, wow, this is a lot of, this is a risky business and you need a lot of equity. The beauty of affordable housing is, like I said, the back-end risk of executing your business plan is sort of taken off the table. Also, because of the various subsidies and tax credits that are involved, you're able to execute a fairly large transaction with almost no true developer equity in the deal. When I came to Joy Construction in 2007, it was primarily a third-party general contractor, convincing my now-current partners to start developing was not that simple. But when I showed them that it could be done with almost no equity involved, it became a lot more attractive.
0: What is it that attracted you to be on the affordable housing side of it as opposed to the market rate side of it? Basically, it comes down to the most simple
1: economic premise of supply and demand. And I think that rings true across any of the states that you just mentioned. Typically, there are more tenants than there are landlords. And with that in mind, you also have to think about overall economic conditions in this country over the last 20 years, where you've seen some stagnation on wages, and yet asset prices have gone up, which means that a tenant who has not seen a tremendous amount of increase in their salary has seen their rent go up tremendously over the last 15 years. But that's also a function of us being in a low interest rate environment for almost the last 17 or 18 years, which means capital gets rewarded and income earners typically end up carrying or footing a lot of the bill, uh, whereas the capital accumulation and landlords are getting uh, rewarded. That said, it really comes down to a supply and demand paradigm. When any of the buildings that get built here in New York, for example, a 100-unit building were to get built... Uh, we would typically take in 60,000 to 80,000 applications for those units, for those affordable housing units. So think about that. Think about a business which is already difficult enough. You have entitlements, you have construction, you have weather, you have utilities. And then at the end of that, if you're building a condo project or a multifamily market rate rental project or a hotel, you have to stay up at night thinking, after all of this, is this going to fill up? Is this going to be successful? Are we going to hit the numbers that we're going to hit? So in the affordable housing development world, that risk gets removed from the table. If anything, you stay up at night feeling bad that you're going to be so oversubscribed that so many qualified tenants are not going to be able to find a home. And what that does is just give you further optimism and further energy to go out and do your next deal. And I think when you look at those numbers, That really is the driving force between affordable housing and it's just supply and demand.
2: And Matt, how about you? We started the firm in 2006 and really got into this because as attorneys, it's a rare privilege to do work that is where you can can do well by doing good. I guess that old phrase. Affordable housing is very complicated. It takes a lot of both financial savviness and an understanding of how to get a deal done The bottom line is, we thought we could we could really make a contribution to this field. We have made a contribution to this field, and we've been able to really make a difference. And and at the end of the day, that's really what's important.
0: Great guys, thanks for sharing that. Well, I guess we should get started. Since 2011, nationwide, the development of market rate and luxury multifamily has outpaced the development of workforce and affordable housing. Recently, it was announced that the Federal Housing Finance Agency will now require Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to have 37.5% of their multifamily activities directed towards affordable housing. Yet, building new can many times cost more than buying existing. There is a gap between need and supply. So, what is this category of housing called affordable? And why is it different than and less developed than more mainstream real estate development?
1: Affordable housing typically is where you're developing a building, whereas the rents are set to be percentages of the potential tenants' incomes. So the federal government through the census has all this information that gets compiled at HUD. And for every area, they'll have a what's called an area median income. So New York City has an area median income for a family of format of about $100,000. And basically uh, what you're trying to do is trying to set rents in these developments at various percentages of that $100,000. So for example, when people say, we would like to see very low income units, which is a theme that's become very common in New York City right now, what they're talking about are rents set at 30 to 40% of area median income, which for easy math, given that the area median income now is $100,000, are these are families of fours who are earning 30 to $40,000 a year. And the programs are set to reverse engineer that these families and prospective tenants won't pay more than 30% of their gross income in rent. And what is typically considered a caution uh, for any family is when they're spending 40 to 50 and sometimes 60% of their gross income for rent. That means that there isn't enough for the other needs that a typical family has. And as to why this product generally gets developed less, well, it's just straight math, right? Concrete that I pour in my affordable housing projects costs the same that I do for my market rate projects, yet I can charge much higher rents on the market rate projects than I can on the affordable projects. So we need to figure out ways to subsidize this gap, uh, which is not made up by higher rents and those resources are scarce, and it takes creative thinking by people like Matt, like people at various government agencies, in order to bridge that gap.
2: Like Eli said, all affordable housing has some type of government subsidy. Either that's tax credits, it's density bonus, it's property tax exemption. It can take numerous uh, numerous forms, but it's really the government and the population deciding that they want to use those tools to make housing more affordable in a certain locality.
0: When did people actually start building quote unquote affordable
2: housing with these government subsidies? I guess you could probably trace the history way back to maybe the 60s. That's right. I think you can go back to the 1986 tax law with the advent of tax credits. And that was really the first concerted effort to bring in private equity into an affordable housing program. And it's been hugely successful. So how do the tax credits work? Well, there's two different types of tax credits, 4% and 9%. The government allocates tax credits to a certain project. The ty- private investor buys those tax credits, and the money that uh, the purchase of those credits goes back into the project as a subsidy form.
0: Give me a dollar example.
2: There's differences between new construction programs and preservation programs. and But let's say that you have... Um, an award of uh, 10 million dollars, and a tax credit um, investor might pay a dollar, five or something like that per, per credit, and that money goes back into the, into the project. So it's a, it's a mechanism to bring in private equity. Private dollars into government subsidized programs. All
0: right. So let me make sure I understand this. So someone buys the tax credit. That money is actually being invested into the project, but then they get this huge tax credit, which saves the money when they file their taxes that they wouldn't get if they just put equity into that project alone.
2: That's right. That's right. All
0: right. So that's how the tax credits work.
1: And I think to take it a step further, the major buyers of these tax credits are banks and they are bound by the Community Reinvestment Act. And these tax credits have historically proven to be an excellent way for these financial institutions to earn community reinvestment credit. First of all, the business is good while not being the most robust or profitable business. It does yield generally decent returns that are linked to other benchmark returns like the 10-year treasury. That's first of all. And second of all, all banks, as they look to do mergers, acquisitions, expand, all get rated uh, via the Community Reinvestment Act. So these, this is how they score points. Going further, Myself, as a developer, when I do a tax credit deal with a financial institution, a JP Morgan, a Wells Fargo, I'm not just giving them the tax credit benefits, there are also depreciation and losses that flow through to the tax credit investor. You know, in today's market, a tax credit investor is probably earning a three to 4% yield on their investment, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less. But remember, they're doing this in order to expand their commercial business by the Community Reinvestment Act. And getting a, a blended you know, return of 3 to 4% over a 10-year period, when their cost of capital is
0: significantly lower, is a pretty attractive return. Does the institution that buys the tax credit, do they get back this equity at some point? No.
1: They're your partner for what's called the low-income housing tax credit compliance period, which is, if it's a 10-year credit, typically there's a 15-year compliance period. At the end of that, there's a negotiated exit where the general partner, myself, the developer, forms a buy-sell type of agreement with the tax credit investor and you part ways. Because of the various subsidies that are ahead of the equity, the equity positions in these projects you know, by year 15 are usually not very large. And so typically there's a buy-sell at that point and the general partner continues with the project.
2: Most uh, municipalities have then added on a regulatory agreement past that year 15. So you might go out to maybe even sixty years as part of the deal for an affordable project. At the end of the fifteen years, the you know, the investor will leave, but you still have to keep the project affordable. What are you finding both of you now in the projects that are being
0: developed? Are they super long term projects or are they projects where the developer themselves eventually ends up with the property and then can go back to market rate? Is that the case? Or are these very, very long-term commitments?
1: I think in the early iterations of affordable housing, and I can you know, say this when I worked in the public sector, I don't, I didn't think that we had the foresight to realize that 20 years goes by a lot faster than you think. I know that both as a developer and as a parent, uh, and I can tell you that could we go back to making any affordable housing program longer, we would have. And more importantly, now as a developer, I still stand by that point of view. And I'll tell you why. Typically, an affordable housing project doesn't just benefit from low-income housing tax credits. There are various subsidies that are involved. But most importantly, there's a real estate property tax abatement. And so that tax abatement will flow for the length of the affordability. And candidly, if you look historically as how real estate property taxes in New York have gone up in the multifamily class over the last 20 years, rents have not gone up that quickly. And so for me, I don't mind trading long-term affordability for a long-term tax abatement
0: because I think it's mathematically the right bet. So you can underwrite a project now that could stay in affordability permanently and it still makes sense. The math still makes sense.
2: I'll even go further. I mean, I think this the city and the state have become very wise about how they structure these deals to the point that they're basically set up for permanent affordability. And what happens is that the, the debt that accrues on these deals, the, in addition to the tax credits, the city of the state will put in a subsidy layer, and there'll be like a certain amount of, you know, a second mortgage or third or fourth mortgage that comes in. And a lot of those mortgages, there's only interest only payments during the, the mortgage period it's towards the end of the mortgage that there's a balloon payment. Unless the market really, really just takes off the property values, and it has actually over the last 20 years, if it continues to such ginormous amounts that perhaps you can refinance the deal and take out the subsidy, the more likelihood is that you'll have to like refinance with the city. And so therefore, you have to go back in and do another affordable project. They really are set up as permanent affordability. I'm currently looking at now some of the projects where I first developed
1: when I was at Joy Construction that are middle-income projects that benefited from the old 421A abatement, which are halfway done. And I'm looking at where the rents are, and I'm looking at where the property taxes are going to be unabated, and I'm starting conversations with the city now to say we should start talking about this because I'm willing to exchange longer-term affordability for a longer-term tax abatement.
0: So I think that's a good segue because in New York City, they did call it 421A and now it's called Affordable New York. Yeah. I mean, the program is not that dissimilar.
1: Many of us still call it the new 421A. I'm not sure that a bunch of us really call it Affordable uh, New York. It's easier to just say new 421A. I think you have to take a step back. As Matt and I were talking about the concept of permanent affordability, one of the first real breakthroughs or changes in the industry in this mayoral administration was mandatory inclusionary housing, which basically meant that any project that went through any type of rezoning or had any city benefit above a certain threshold had to reserve either 25 or 30% of their units to be affordable in perpetuity. And that was the first time in New York that there was permanent mandatory inclusionary housing. With that, the new 421A or affordable New York sort of mirrored that abatement in providing a tax abatement for reserving 25 to 30% of your units into being affordable. The abatement is longer now. There's an option to renew. That said, there are parts of it that are slightly more complicated. You don't receive the benefits at the beginning of the project like you did at the old 421A. You receive them at the end. So a bunch of us are just starting projects using that new program. But for the most part, it functions the same way it really was
0: a way to elongate the term of the affordability. We're talking about this in New York. What about the rest of the country? Does every state have some kind of an affordability program or does it drill down to the city level or the county level or is it mostly at the state level? How does the federal government get involved in this in different states?
2: It does vary state by state. I mean, New York is, I think, one of the most committed to affordable housing the mayor has a plan for 100,000 units. There are other cities. I know DC also has a very committed mayor towards affordable housing, and they all, they all put together different plans. The, the bottom line is every state has tax credits allocated to them to be able to facilitate the development of affordable housing, but the projects often don't pencil out unless you have a good subsidy layer that comes in. And subsidy is really just taxpayer funds, and it could come from numerous different sources, but the municipality or the state has to make that commitment in order to make the numbers work.
0: What are some of those subsidies? Give me examples of some of those subsidies. There are various as-of-right subsidies that the New
1: York City HPD and New York City HDC give. They're basically, as Matt said, second and third mortgages that are interest-only or accruing interest-only, and essentially it just brings your blended cost of capital down on a project. So said simply, my affordable housing projects don't cost that much less than my market rate rentals do. Clearly the, the finishes might be slightly different, but the overall structure, the mechanical, the HVAC, the soil, the foundation, those are completely agnostic to what the use are of the building. And so the only way to make affordable housing work is through financial engineering. And by fin- financial engineering, you are engineering a situation whereas your cost of capital is that much cheaper your equity stack due to the tax credits is that much more favorable. So there's a lot more equity in these deals, but it's not clipping away at a very high return. And then finally, we get the benefit of using private activity tax-exempt bonds, which essentially give us construction financing historically at a much lower rate than market rate financing. We've been in a period over the last few years that market rate financing and Tax-exempt bond financing have gotten much closer in terms of them being competitive. But one way or another, states, municipalities, cities, whatever it is, have a bunch of tools to create affordable housing. The problem then becomes the economics of each locality and to see what makes sense and which
0: tools make sense for that location. So you talked about the soil. What about the disposition of city, state, or federally owned land and the sale of unused city-owned development rights to developers in order to lower the cost of the initial acquisition of the place where the structure is going to be built.
2: The, the problem with all of this is the cost of land. The cost of land is not going down in most localities, and it's really the one of the major cost drivers on making an affordable housing project work. In fact, even if you look at the history of affordable housing in New York City, you know the Bronx... There was a significant amount of affordable housing that went into the Bronx, and it's really helped to elevate and raise the whole borough. As a result, that's actually helped to elevate the cost of land. There are some challenges there. The city-owned land stock in New York City has gone down dramatically. They've gone through and they have RFPs that come out, and, and there's, you, can, you can still bid on certain projects to be able to develop, but there's not that much land left. And so in, in cities like New York City, you have to be very creative on how to do a project. These days a lot of deals that we work on are faith-based development deals, churches that have been underbuilt, looking at you know unique land opportunities and and trying to match the match the social mission with the project itself. That's really some of the tools that we do to get to get these projects done. So
0: what part of the projects is your firm handling, Matt?
2: We are usually on the on the developer side. Developer could be either the private developer or nonprofit developer. We you know, we we do a lot of joint venture deals with churches and landowners and people that really have the experience in the affordable housing world.
0: So at what point in the process are they actually coming to you?
2: Early. And we we encourage that early, especially if you don't have as much experience on doing these projects. They're very complicated projects, as Eli will attest. Even though it's a large industry in New York City, in New York State, there's still a fairly small number of players doing these projects because the learning curve is so high. As we mentioned earlier, there's numerous um, subsidy sources. You have to figure out how to put the budget together that works the best and provide a reasonable rate of return to the developer. And then there's also working through the mechanisms of the city and the state agencies themselves. You have to go through a, a disclosure process. You have to understand the nuances of getting a property tax exemption, an Article 11 abatement through the city council, nuanced things that you really have to have a lot of experience doing. So when develop when somebody comes to us and says, hey, I want to do an affordable housing project, usually we'll, we'll take them on early. We'll help kind of hold their hand through the process, but we'll also advise them to get a consultant that's done the work previously. When people come to me and ask me,
1: what are the returns in affordable housing? I always tell them the same thing. I don't think this is the right business for you. And I'll tell you why, because everyone who's involved in affordable housing, whether it's the attorneys, the banks, the equity investors, almost everything, we really view it as a very unique industry. It's, we're all mission-based, that's the reality. We're all mission-based for the reason that we all see the same people, we're in front of the same agencies. Every project has to really work out. Any bad project, any dispute, Any project that doesn't use the money correctly, any project that cuts corners with construction hurts all of us, hurts the entire industry.
2: One nice thing about the industry is that you develop a track record. If you're trying to cut quarters, it's eventually going to catch up with you. And usually those people leave the industry altogether.
0: Eli, at what point do you come into the picture as an affordable housing developer?
1: So I guess what I first like to do is take a 30,000 foot approach to affordable housing. Oh, I like that. Okay. 35,000 feet. I could go as high as I want. Do I need a parachute? Hopefully, at the end, you'll feel comfortable going to land. Essentially, first, I look at targeting neighborhoods, right? I wouldn't look at certain neighborhoods in Brooklyn and say, I should really be spending my time walking up streets there to build affordable housing because either they're single family homes and the zoning is not there for the density, or they're extremely gentrified and the land won't make sense. Going to the city of New York and saying, I just spent $300 per square foot on a piece of land and I like to build affordable housing makes no sense, right? Because the city is being presented deals in the $70 to $80 a foot. Why would they want to subsidize land that costs too much? And so I first start by trying to be strategic as where do I want to spend my time uh, in terms of where do I think there's political will, a welcome from the community for affordable housing. So I start with identifying neighborhoods. So for example, I have two projects that are in pre-development in Inwood right now. I started taking the train up to Inwood in 2013 and walking around. I familiarized myself with the neighborhood walked the waterfront, thought there was a huge opportunity for a redevelopment of the waterfront, and then started to look at site acquisitions. I was very fortunate that as I was assembling sites, the city saw the same thing that I saw, which was here was a place that was in Manhattan that had strong access to transportation and hadn't had a lot of housing built in the recent history. And so via rezoning, which is another great tool that the city has at its disposal, because it just can't endlessly write checks being able to give out more zoning bonuses and densities to all of the developers in that neighborhood is another way to subsidize affordable housing. And I start there and I start to think about, I want to be in thinking about where affordable housing is three to five years before it's identified. Because once it's identified, the cost of the land goes up and you really don't have a competitive advantage to bring your project to the city.
0: Have you already locked in the land three to five years previous and then start doing all the research to see if you can actually create affordable housing there and build something? I have done five before. It's not fun, but I think two to three years is a typical
1: gestation period from either site control, some sort of loose JV agreement with a landowner, identifying a site to start in construction and affordable housing is a two to three year process.
0: So you don't necessarily have to acquire the land. You can do a JV agreement with the landowner.
1: Absolutely. And I think when Matt was talking about faith-based development, that's when developers like myself and I've done this in the past, I approach a religious institution like a church or a synagogue whose needs, whose space needs are not being uh met by how large of a site they own and we can repurpose and redevelop that project and either they can relocate to a a better location with the money he's got or come back to the project when it's completed. So you have to be very creative in creating joint ventures and any type of opportunity where you can lock up land and go through this long process, lead time to closing.
0: Now, what about land that has something on it that is rezoned for a different use? So let's say it's a legacy industrial or It's multifamily that somehow became vacant over a period of time, or some other use that is no longer economically viable. Uh, And it's not just vacant land. What can happen there? So I think
1: you have to look at it as two ways. It can't just be what your opinion is. The city has policies that they want to push. And so if you're in this industry, both Matt, myself, we belong to various organizations. We speak to people at the city all of the time. We try to stay in the know of what the city is pushing. So there is a strong like for this uh, administration when it came to manufacturing. They did start to get upset when they started to see all the manufacturing zoned properties being rezoned to hotels, and they changed the zoning text. So when you say underused or misused, it's not necessarily the way you want to see it. It's where city
2: policy is going. And you have to really know the local community to understand what you can do. You know, there are instances if you go through a ulurp process that the that the community board will get behind you. Ulurp, what's that? It's the city's land disposition process and basically a tool where you have to go through some some processes, some wickets with each of the different stakeholders to get their approval to get to a to a zoning change. Because land is getting more scarce, because affordable land is getting more and more scarce, there is there is some willingness to to change an like an M1 zone to to a residential But you got to really know the local politics.
0: Well, while we're talking about zoning, there was an article in the New York Times in June, and I believe it was uh, 12 cities they focused in on. And they said that many cities are considering rezoning to allow for greater density. And they showed some of the cities that had a very, very small percentage of density over one family. I mean, some of them as low as 10 or 15 percent, where, of course, The inverse was true in New York City. It was more like 85% was not single family. What do you think about cities actually saying, you know what, we're going to take some of these single family zoned areas and we're going to turn them into a much higher density so that we have the ability to create more units under an affordable program and actually satisfy this need, which is not just in New York, but nationwide.
2: I'm all for it. We're trying to develop more affordable housing, but obviously there's several communities that just do not want to upzone whatsoever. I mean, even here in New York City, if you look out in Queens and Staten Island, it's probably going to be low-density areas forever. So it really comes down to the political will, the community itself, and the ability to pull those forces together. I think Matt hit the nail on the head. It's all about political climate. So in New York,
1: two of the last major rezonings that the city sponsored – East Harlem and Inwood both brought lawsuits against the rezonings, post the rezoning approval via the Article 78 process. I mean, that's how far people will go to oppose a rezoning. That said, like I said, municipalities can't rely on writing checks forever to create housing eventually that model doesn't work whether it's any business if you're just going to think about spending money to fix a problem eventually you need to be more creative than just money and so other municipalities other states are saying we can give away the air the density which doesn't really cost us much and we can build a six-story building where we would have built a single family home which means a larger tax base I think that's an extremely important point of view is that affordable housing is good business, and you see that because of who invests in it, mostly because you're creating jobs, which adds to the tax revenue base. You're creating more residents, keeping more residents in New York, adding to the tax revenue base. So I think other municipalities are saying, okay, we may need to give away air, which candidly has no value unless you're using it. And we're going to be able to grow our population. We're going to be able to grow our tax base. And I think that's attractive to a
2: lot of municipalities. I want to, I want to go back to one point that Eli was talking about with um, the 30,000-foot view. Part of the challenge from a developer perspective is is managing risk. And a real unknown there is the ability to get in and actually get the project done um, in the pipeline that the city and the state has. So there, right now, there's so much demand on HPD, HDC and the state agencies that there's really some risk in making sure that you can actually get to a closing and I, and I don't want to I think that needs to be underscored so it's not only the part of like you know getting the deal in place going through the land disposition process making sure you have your plan approvals getting everything lined up with your financing it's also making sure that you work with the city and the state agency to get in line to be able to actually do a closing
1: so the first major rezoning that was done under the de Blasio administration was the East New York rezoning. And due to the rezone, the nature of the rezoning, probably 100 owners woke up and had a million square foot projects. And everybody was running around New York saying, I have a million square feet of affordable housing. I have a million square feet of affordable housing. And everybody wanted preposterous amounts for the land. And my response to everybody was, that's great. I can't go to the city with a million square foot project. There aren't, there isn't enough capital sources available for this. So, you know, you're probably looking at a four stage two hundred and fifty thousand square foot closing and people don't realize that. People don't realize that just because you have all this density doesn't mean that the resources are there. The job of, you know, developers, consultants, lawyers are to really match up the available resources, the political thought, the political will, all together with a project.
0: I would imagine there's a an immense Investment of capital up front that could end up being for a project that doesn't go forward. Does that happen sometimes?
2: It does. It does. Yeah, that's the risk.
0: Well, what would you say uh, the percentage of a total project? Is there any like rule of thumb, you know, 5% of a total project, 10% of a total project, 8% of a total project is going to be invested up front before you even know if it's going to work? I think that really comes down to how you structure the land deal.
1: To be candid, if you have a deal where you're making a joint venture or doing a joint venture with a landowner and you're able to carry the land at a sensible number, then you're really just spending pre-development money and I think that would be very manageable. When you actually have to go out and purchase the land, which unfortunately, that's much more of a reflection of today's environment of New York City real estate, then you're talking about you know at least 15 to 20% of the total development cost needs to be carried up front for potentially
2: two to three years. But you can mitigate your risk by having the conversations with the city and the state, understanding what their priorities are for financing, because they're not just affordable, there's also supportive housing projects, there's different flavors of the type of affordable housing. Each of the different programs that they have at the the agencies has different priorities. So you kind of have to know when you look at your project, well, is this going to be 4% tax credit deal? Is this going to be a supportive project? They even have the condos and co-op programs. There's middle income. There's a whole you know, buffet of different types of financing programs. So you can mitigate your risk by understanding, what I mentioned earlier, the pipeline, how backed up things are, to understand the priorities of the agencies and to fit your project into the best chance of, of closing.
0: Before you had mentioned HPD and some of the other agencies that are involved, what are actually the full names of those agencies and what part do they play in this?
2: The city's housing agency is Department of Housing Preservation and Development. And it really has oversight of all the housing stock in New York City, both to make sure that the violations are cleared up, to make sure that landlords are acting properly. And then it also has a function of facilitating Section 8 and other federal sources of financing that come in. And then there's the production part. So I would give HPD a lot of credit as being one of the more ambitious and thoughtful agencies in the country of developing programs to produce affordable housing projects. as I mentioned there's there's a co-op project program, there's a condo program, there's a middle income program, supportive housing, the standard affordable low very low income program probably about 20 different programs you can you can access through HPD.
1: And what was the agency you mentioned, Eli? The New York City Housing Development Corporation, where I was employed from 2003 to 2006. HDC is actually a state benefit corporation, or said simply a a quasi-government agency. It was chartered at the state level, and its two main functions are to issue tax-exempt and taxable bond financing for the development and creation and preservation of affordable housing, and more importantly, Mostly because of how successful of a business it's run, they have a balance sheet which has a tremendous amount of capital dollars, which then they'll reinvest as second or third mortgages in projects where they issue bonds to. So they've been instrumental in projects as small as 20 units. They were also one of the lead financing agencies when Blackstone acquired Stytown. So HDC is the largest housing issuer of bonds in the United States. And typically issues about a billion and a half to $2 billion a year in bond financing. It's one of the few housing agencies in the United States that is rated a loan by S&P. And due to its servicing portfolio and its keen understanding of capital markets, is able to generate profits that get reinvested back into the new developments in New York City.
2: So those are the two city agencies. And on the state side, they have HFA and HCR. HPD's equivalent on the state level is the housing and community renewal. The HDC equivalent is housing finance agency. And to get even more complicated, the state also does work in the city. Of course, the city doesn't do any work in the state, but there's, so there's an overlap there of different priorities quick
0: little break here realty speak fans we cover so many topics on the show but sometimes you may need more than that therefore i'm here to personally help you when you have more questions around buying or holding or selling your valuable apartment building real estate every transaction is different and so are the people involved a successful outcome will depend on the execution proper planning with decades in the industry in the areas of brokerage construction debt capital and appraisal, I can professionally guide you at any point in the cycle of acquisition, your existing portfolio, or the sale of your multifamily and multifamily mixed-use real estate. Call me. It's just that easy. To get the information, you need to know when you need to know it. Now. The number? It's 917-232-8529. What else can I say? Real estate is in my DNA. And now back to the show. Let's talk about some of the press that we've been exposed to lately. Of course, the most recent was the impact of the New York State Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act of 2019, how it strengthened the rent laws, not just in the city of New York, but statewide. And then also some of the press that we're reading on NYCHA. And NYCHA stands for New York City Housing Agency. That's the public housing that exists in New York City, correct? That is correct. Right. And there's been some press about how the city's been handling NYCHA and the conditions of living there. And I guess it's considered low-income housing?
1: That is correct. Yeah, it's public housing. It's low-income housing. It's administered by NYCHA with funding from HUD, the federal level. There are a few numbers that go around as to how many residents. I've heard somewhere between four and 600,000, which is pretty impressive considering that you know the entire city of Boston has 800,000 people in it as the San Francisco. So almost every single night in New York City, we have another city that goes to sleep in public housing. Public housing is a model that's been outdated in affordable housing. And when I say that as the industry that Matt and I work in, we call today's paradigm the public private partnership which means public agencies work with private developers, private lawyers, private financial institutions to provide subsidies to create privately developed and privately owned. And when I say privately, that means non-for-profit as well, but not government-owned housing. NYCHA goes back to a period of time post-World War II, there were crises in housing and the government got into the housing business. And unfortunately, didn't turn out the way that everybody envisioned. What started as a very well-intentioned program sort of became a very unmanageable real estate portfolio. And so the reason for that is without private ownership, NYCHA is subject to so many rules and regulations, which as I tell everybody, people complain to me about NYCHA all the time. And I said, if you stepped into their shoes, you would not do that
2: much better. Everyone beats up on NYCHA, I mean, that's for sure. I mean, and there's been a, a huge change in leadership. The average tender there is a year or year and a half as the head of NYCHA. But if you look back historically, it's really done a, a great job on providing housing for many people over many decades. I agree with Eli that the model needs to be changed. Now the question is, well, how do you change the model and ensure that you have affordability going forward? We don't want to use that land to enrich some private developers. We want to make sure it continues on with the same mission, but just in a different manner.
0: How would you do that?
2: I'm an advocate of looking at the unused land spaces. The city's done this recently with going out with RFPs and developing some of that land and using the assets to go back into the reserves. There's tremendous amount of deferred maintenance in these buildings and they have very few um, reserves. So you really need to find some, some revenue sources to fix that problem. That's one component. And then there are some other tools to be able to look at individual projects and basically take them out of the public housing authority and redevelop them back to what I, to Eli said in this private-public partnership. I'm
1: working on two projects with NYCHA right now. One project is under the program called NYCHA Next Generation, which, as Matt said, issued requests for proposals for projects on unused land within NYCHA properties. So together with a wonderful nonprofit partner called Settlement Housing, developing a 200-unit affordable housing project in the Twin Parks NYCHA project up in the Bronx. And under a second NYCHA program, which is relatively new, called NYCHA 2.0, On a piece of property that I own in Brooklyn, I'm acquiring 170,000 square feet of air rights from NYCHA in your typical air rights deal. And that'll generate roughly $25 million to NYCHA that will be used specifically at Ingersoll houses, which is the property where the air rights are being generated from. These properties have unused air rights. Given the way that air rights get sold in New York City, typically there's only one or two buyers that could technically buy them. And so... Being that there was not going to be new development within NYCHA, it made more sense to sell them at a market rate price to a developer. And so those are two examples of how NYCHA is looking at its own portfolio and seeing opportunities for revenue.
0: So was the sale of those air rights, development rights, follow the normal rules and regulations of how development rights are sold? Yes, it
1: looks like any other real estate transaction that you would see. There'll be a zoning lot development agreement, we'll go to a contract, I'll post a deposit, there'll be a closing date, there'll be security, everything will mirror a market rate transaction. The only thing that is different is that I'm buying property from a government agency, which means there are various approvals that need to be done. There's an environmental study that needs to be done, and then there's a process known as Section 18, whereas NYCHA makes an application to HUD, the federal government,
0: to dispose of or to do a land disposition. I'm in that process right now. Because you acquire those development rights, then you have the ability to build something much larger somewhere else that you normally wouldn't be able to? That is correct.
1: I'm acquiring those air rights. That adds to an existing development side of mine, but it's not somewhere else. It's the, the property adjacent to the Ingersoll houses. But every bit of air that comes in from that sale is subject to mandatory inclusionary housing, which we covered before, which means 25% of every single square foot that I acquire from NYCHA will be reserved in perpetuity for mandatory affordable housing apartments for people earning 60% of the area median income. So those are families of four earning about $60,000.
0: Talk a little bit about mandatory inclusionary housing, what the timeline has been from pretty much when it started to now, what the different ratios are, and how you think it's going to impact the future of affordable housing. When you look back and you agree with the premise that you can't just write checks forever for affordable
1: housing, you need to come up with other ideas to generate growth tools for affordable housing. Mandatory inclusionary housing, or as we in the industry call it, MIH is just that. When you rezone a property in New York and you get additional square footage or FAR, uh, you're now required to set aside either 25% or 30% of the project. So 25% would be most of the units at 60% and some at 40% of area AMI, or you can reserve 30% of the units at 80%. Of the AMI. So, the higher you go up the income, the more affordability in terms of gross square footage and apartments you need to give. And essentially, what the city did is they said, look, these air rights that we're giving you via this rezoning are a subsidy, they're a benefit. We want something in return for this benefit, and that's affordable housing. And it costs the city nothing because the air to the city is free. And so, it was a way to generate more affordable housing projects and more affordable housing units in New York. And I think it's been since about 2014, since it's been in place. And candidly, the program works very well. It's involved in almost all of our projects. It reserves those units in perpetuity for affordable
2: housing. It's another tool in the toolbox of the government to be able to facilitate the development of affordable housing. I want to go back to NYCHA. The thing about NYCHA, it's like a big ship, and it's going to take a long time to turn around that ship in the right direction. And I think that Part of really some challenges in prior administrations has been the engagement of the local population on understanding like the different plans to repurpose some of that land and making sure that the local community is on board with that. But then also making sure that there's full transparency on projects. So I'm a big fan of the RFP process. You want to make sure you go out and get the best deal possible. And I think as long as they do that and they are real entrepreneurial in the way they think about how to repurpose that land, I think it can be successful, but it's going to take a long time to do that. And you also need the commitment of the federal government. So HUD has been cutting back quite a bit in, in over the last, uh, what is it, five years or so. And so there's less Section 8 money available and there's unfortunately more deferred maintenance. So that's that's part of the problem.
0: The second part of the question Was about the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act of 2019 here in New York. And that is a little different than everything that we've been speaking about up to this point because that is changing the deal on private landlords that already own buildings that have stabilized apartments in them. And it has severely restricted them from increasing those rents or ever being able to deregulate those apartments. Do you guys have any opinion, each one of you, on why that is being looked at as a solution for affordable housing? And then, of course, you know, we also have Oregon and and California following suit. So I think, first of all, you know,
1: that date for that segment of the industry, people in real estate who look to deregulate, is a day that'll live in infamy. You know, to quote Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It was really... A very, very dark day for that industry. It's like Pearl Harbor. Exactly right. However, however. Some uh, some landowner owners would, would say that. Absolutely. I mean, many people feel their entire equity in their buildings were wiped out. Many people are viewing it as a taking and are suing under concepts of eminent domain. That said, you really have two people here on today's show who have spent most of our career building, generating, uh, structuring housing that's going to be voluntarily placed into uh, rent stabilization. So this is really, at least for me as a landlord, administratively dealing with some of my tenants, some of the forms needed to change, some of the notice times needed to change. But my business plan was always to put units into rent stabilization them keep them there for longer periods of time. And so this concept of deregulating in order to create capital was always completely foreign to me.
0: Yeah, but every every single transaction that you've got involved in, every single project that you've completed, you underwrote that based on what you knew was going to happen in your industry because it's already happening. These private landlords at this point are in a situation where all of a sudden they signed up for one thing and now the deal has changed and the rules have changed. Absolutely.
1: And that's a risk in any business, right? That's a risk in real estate. That's a risk in any business that the rules can change at any time. However... Matt and I were talking before about, you know, taking a 30,000 foot view. If you looked at politics and how elections and general politics were lining up in New York City and New York State over the last three to five years, and you found the change in the rent law in June to be shocking, I don't think you were reading the newspapers very carefully or had your ear to the ground all that closely. And so for me, having been in the market rate world, both in condos, hotels, I started to pivot my business about three years ago back to being even more focused on affordable housing because that's where the sentiment was in New York. And the reality of it is while, like I said, there are some minor tweaks and changes to the affordable housing industry, we were always going well beyond, our industry was always going well beyond rent stabilization. We would put our buildings into what are called regulatory agreements, which we'd even have further restrictions on raising rents and further restrictions on qualifying tenants beyond rent stabilization. So the reality is, this really didn't impact our industry as much, but you said it best for the industry of deregulating units. Uh, it was a very, very, very dark day Like I said, I think a predictable day, but
2: a dark one nonetheless. I look back at President Trump's budget, the the budget cuts he passed a couple of years ago. And when that legislation was passed, there are some people in the affordable housing business that thought that that was going to be the end of our industry. that tax credit rates were going to just drop dramatically. We weren't going to be able to do deals very easily. And the reality is maybe it had a little bit of a hurt, but we're all fine. We're all doing fine. and, And the market adjusts. I think it's kind of the same way with these tenant, the tenant laws. I mean, I think there's probably going to be some swinging back of the pendulum a little bit and with some amendments, but I think it's going to be okay.
1: There were situations, and it's always sad because I would say the majority of landlords are responsible landlords who are trying to do the right thing. But there were bad apples who were abusing the rent laws. And that became something that became a little bit out of hand. And unfortunately, it's always the bad apples that get the press, right? Landlords in Queens and in Brooklyn who own two or three buildings, take care of them by themselves, by hand, and are good to their tenants, unfortunately got swept up with a lot of bad actors. But furthering what Matt said, you know, maybe it's not the worst thing that the multifamily sector in New York isn't being financed by private equity, chasing IRRs that are not realistic and are only based on displacing people from their home. I mean, if a business plan is completely predicated on displacing somebody from their home who doesn't voluntarily want to leave, I'm not sure that the role of government is not to take a look at that and say, hey, what should we do here?
2: I think in this whole affordable housing industry, you know, we're all committed to it, but, you know, everyone's trying to make some money here. You have to have some reasonable rate of returns. And I, th- I think we have to, it's all about finding balance.
0: Well, hopefully there'll be some balance at some time in the future. So we've talked about rental affordable housing. We have talked about programs for condos and co-ops. I would imagine there are uh, single-family programs as well, right? Not so much. No? Not not really. Not in the same volume that there is multifamily.
1: Right.
2: In fact, the volume of co-op and condo programs has actually decreased uh, probably since, what, 10 years ago, since the Great Recession, even before that time.
1: Yeah, and the issue was buyers having issues getting end loans. That was really the issue, was you would create this affordable housing, the financing structure would be complex, the co-op or condo offering book would be a little bit more complex because of various uh, tax abatements and the financial structure of the underlying cooperative. You know, your typical mortgage underwriter working out of Utah or Texas would look at this and say, this is not for me. And so you would build this and then buyers wouldn't be able to get mortgages to buy their homes.
0: Yeah, because uh, lending for one to four family dwellings, condos, and co-ops is completely different than the lending on the types of projects that we've been talking about now. Now, what about co-living? That's the latest craze, co-living. Could there be affordable projects for co-living? So definitely the city
1: has looked at micro-units, which is a different concept, which is just creating smaller units and thus creating more units. These are tiny studios, you know, 220 square feet. And then there's co-living, which really is an industry that is not just micro-units, it's geared towards creating a community inside of a building. Co-living is interesting to me because it presupposes that people are going to change from traditional styles of living. And it's really important in terms of stability for neighborhoods that larger units, family units, get built And co-living is usually not family style. It's rather geared towards single professionals, people who are more transient. And so I'm not sure for long-term investments in neighborhoods and communities. And I think what you see over the last few months, we were promised that the world was going to change with co-working, with WeWork. And I think we're all sort of learning that basic concepts of economics, like short-term Assets matched against long-term liabilities is not always the best way to approach business, and so I can tell you that while it is popular, and this millennial generation is certainly more interested in sharing and pooling, I'm not sure that an entire industry can take off on this. That makes sense financially.
2: There was a micro-unit project a couple of years ago.
1: Yeah, there was an RFP in the city in Murray Hill.
2: Yeah, but I don't really, I haven't seen much uh, from that effort since that time.
1: So that one didn't go forward? No, it did. It got built, and I think it was a beautiful project. You know, Matt and I were saying these were studios that were probably 200 to 220 square feet. I think the project was considered a huge success. But remember, the the impetus and the political will for affordable housing is for whoever is approving it, the administration, the council, to be popular. And so micro units, while it brings in a bunch of people, these are typical, typically a bit more of a transient nature in terms of population, mostly based on age. That's not necessarily a segment of the population that stays in a community. So, you know, building two bedroom and three bedroom apartments in in communities leads to a a larger voting base and a larger working base. And generally people who are gonna stay in those apartments longer, creating a community.
0: I'm sure the listeners are really, really appreciating all this intel on affordable housing and the different things that we've been discussing. Uh, Let's say one of them is at the point where they feel like they have a site that would be good for affordable housing, and this is not the type of investment that they would do before. What would be the steps for them to start, go through the process, and eventually complete and own an affordable housing project?
2: The the first thing they they need to do is hire a good attorney. Uh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) I agree with that. I think I know one. Come on now.
2: Matt Hall.
1: So I agree with that completely. And the reason is that is the first step in affordable housing is a technical step. So before anybody were to even go out and look at a site, I would strongly recommend going on to the city's websites, both HPD and HDC, and see what term sheets and what terms financially are available to you. Where would
0: you go if you were in another state?
1: You would go to the housing agencies of that particular state. And many times, these term sheets are fairly complicated, and they're complicated not so much financially, but legally. And so when Matt said you call a good lawyer, while it was a humorous remark, he's spot on. You do. You do need a good lawyer if it's your first time looking at it, because you don't understand things like regulatory agreements or compliance period. And those are concepts that need to be explained to you from day one. Then... I think you need to sort of get a sense of the neighborhood in terms of what type of affordable housing are you building there? Are you building very low? Is that going to be something that's welcomed by the community and the local politicians, by the city? Are you building middle income? Is that the more appropriate product that you want to be doing? And then once you get a sense of that, then you have to start to cobble together a team And the first step that I would always do in coupling together that team is to get a design professional to tell you, hey, roughly, what can I build here? So if I have a 10,000 square foot lot or a 50,000 square foot lot, I don't need you to tell me within the last 500 square feet, but I need to have a rough understanding of what I can build Is the site really complicated from a construction point of view, whereas the construction costs are going to get out of hand and execution becomes risky? And then how many units can I provide? Once you get a general sense of that, you need to put together your team, your attorneys. Very importantly, you need to find lenders, banks, and tax credit investors who say, yeah, we like that project. We have an appetite for this neighborhood where we have an appetite for this segment of the income band. And then you have to start to think to yourself, what's going to differentiate my project when I go into a government agency? Why are they going to look favorably on my project? Sometimes that can be as simple as location. Sometimes that could be as simple as you bought the property so cheaply that It provides a great deal financially for the city in terms of the amount they have to spend for the units they get back. Sometimes it's an area that really hasn't been able to attract a lot of affordable housing development, and the city is excited to say, hey, we're going to build an affordable housing project in an area that everyone thought it couldn't be done. So it's trying to find something special. Sometimes it's a property that has an excellent retail component to it because that retail income can subsidize the project cost and therefore making it a better deal for the city. So once you've identified the project, then you have to say, okay, what makes this project special? What gives me the confidence that the city and the stakeholders and the investors and everybody that goes into an affordable housing project is gonna say, we wanna be a part of this.
2: Eli hit the nail on the head there. When you go into the agency, you almost have to do a little bit of a sales pitch. Why does the agency wanna finance this project? and provide subsidy and and provide manpower to work on it. That's a real critical piece. So building the team that knows what they're doing is very important. And one other person that you need if you're a first timer in this business is you need to have a consultant that knows the ropes, that knows how to put a budget together, understands the nuances. And you have to go through a disclosure process. They have to understand that I'm gonna have to disclose all my financial background And that the city is going to look at violations that the the developer has in other buildings that's going to want you to clear that that stuff up. So the important part is you have to really understand that you're getting into the pool and it's, I wouldn't say sink or swim, but it's very hard to figure this stuff out. And you really have to be committed to making it happen. I think it's important that people go into it with the mindset that it
1: truly is a public-private partnership. So the private developer buys the land. But essentially, as you go through the process of putting your deal together, you realize that there are stakeholders in your project that have no economic stake in it, but are going to have a big say, i.e. the community board, i.e. the local council person, perhaps the borough president, the city housing agencies. Now, they have no money at risk, but they have a lot to say about your project. And if that gives you any level of discomfiture, this industry is going to be a very challenging industry for you.
0: Both of you said this was mission-based, and this is why both of you are involved in it. From a developer's point of view, Eli, what's in it for you? Uh keeps me busy. Uh, no, um,
1: <laughs> Here's the secret. Right. No, look, the reality is I always tell everybody, financially affordable housing is a lot of singles and doubles. But the risk factor is much lower. I've been involved in condo projects, and it's binary. You either sell or you don't. And when you don't, there's nothing. When you miss your rents on a market rate rental project, all your equity gets trapped in the deal. The nice thing about an affordable housing project with very limited, or in many cases, no equity, you generate a developer fee, I'm a general contractor as well, so I keep that part of the business going, and to be candid with you, it's a long-term business. The people who are in affordable housing are usually in it for the long term. So when I say that it's mission-based, it's a long-term mission. People who have been in this business for 20, 30 years have amassed four, five, six, seven, ten thousand units across the city of multifamily. Now it may not be units on the upper east side or the upper west side that are market rate, but you are building cash flow. It becomes a generational business. For myself, I, I don't know if I envision my son and my daughter. Going into this business, but whatever it is that I've developed and that I own will one day, you know, be theirs if they're interested. And people go into it because, you know, when you miss in development, you miss bad and it's ugly. In affordable housing, you're really, really mitigating your risk. The supply and demand paradigm is in your favor. The subsidies and the financial tools of affordable housing really make the capital stack work for you in terms of developer fee. And so all you really need to do is carry out your business plan, and you're really not at the mercy of things that you can't control.
0: If you don't mind sharing, what percentage of your ownership in projects is affordable housing, and what percent is market rate housing?
1: Oh, it's disproportionately tilted towards affordable housing. So within our portfolio, we have probably 3,000 units of affordable housing that we own, about 500 units of market rate housing that we own, uh, two in Manhattan, one in Brooklyn. We've developed a community facility, which is market rate, but still I would consider community development. And we own a hotel in Hudson Yards and are finishing our second on 48th Street. However, the market rate units are units that I look at as if I'm approached to sell and the price is right, I would sell them because to me you know, the future of where rents are going to go. I mean, obviously, I'm a landlord, so I always think positively, but you really don't know. The nice thing about affordable housing is when you own housing, and the area gentrifies around you, and you're charging $1,000 a month for a two-bedroom, and the rest of the market is at $1,800 a month, I feel pretty good that that building is going to stay full, and that people are going to continue paying the rent. On my market rate units, I am really very linked to how the economy is doing. And so... If the rental market gets off, I feel it very, very, very acutely. I built a building on uh, the corner of 3rd Avenue and 12th Street called the Nathaniel. It was actually named after my son, Nathaniel. And uh, I was approached by the Social Security Fund of Kuwait known as Wafra, and I sold the building. And uh, it was a tough conversation that night to tell my son I sold the building that I had named after him. And he asked me why I did it. And I said to him, well, I said, today the rents are here. I don't know where the rents are going to be in a few years from now. And I said, at the end of the day, that's the right business move. The supply and demand paradigm is so in favor of affordable housing that you always feel it's the right move to come back from a development point of view, from a
2: portfolio ownership point of view to that execution.
1: That's the right business move.
2: In a new project, new construction, affordable project, there's thousands of applicants. The the demand is is incredible. And that's what Eli was saying about risk. This is New York City centric. There are some municipalities where the actual rents are closer to market. And so there is a higher risk level for those projects. That's right. And that's why,
1: I mean, besides there being so much Community Reinvestment Act demand, in New York because of the amount of deposits at banks in New York. The reason the tax credit investors love New York is that supply and demand paradigm because they'll go do a project in Oklahoma and 60% of the area median income may only be $5,000 more than where rents are. And so there's a risk there that you may actually build an affordable housing project and have an issue with lease up. So you're not doing anything in other states then? You're just in New York? And when it comes to affordable housing, I'm just in New York. I think it's a very local business. I mean, I think people in our industry do New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, but it is a very local business.
0: Now, people hear the word workforce housing. Sometimes that's intermingled with affordable housing. Are they the same thing?
2: Workforce housing is a derivative of affordable housing, just a slightly higher area median income, AMI. You know, you might go 120% AMI versus a 60% AMI. It's more of a middle income, lower middle income tier affordable housing. It's politically charged and workforce housing is just a more politically palatable term. As you
1: move up in trying to provide housing for populations of, let's say, 120%, you're talking about families of four making $120,000 a year. Sometimes there's a lack of political will to provide any level of subsidies to families earning that amount. However, in New York, that is not the same as what it is in, you know, Kansas or in Arkansas. Pivoting to a word like workforce housing is a good reminder to say, yes, you're right. There is a segment of population that needs affordable housing, and they're earning thirty to forty thousand dollars a year. But that's not to say that a family of four earning one hundred and twenty thousand dollars that there shouldn't be programs geared towards that family that provides them a stable, brand new rental apartment that's commensurate with their income
0: level. The exit strategy for market rate projects is evident. What about with these long-term commitments to affordable projects? Is, Is there an exit strategy for you? I think my exit
1: strategy would be to hold these in our portfolio for as long as possible. I'm already at the point right now where the new deals that I'm signing, I have to come to grips with that the regulatory agreements, meaning the term of affordability, are gonna go on beyond my life. I'm 42 years old. And the last regulatory agreement I personally signed was 60 years. Very blessed. I have one grandfather who's still alive at 97. But uh, I have to be honest with myself that at this point, you know, I'm working for future generations. And to be candid with you, like I said, we're mission based. Every unit that we create and that we have in our portfolio we're happy about creating an affordable unit. The stronger my industry is, the better it is for business, for myself, for Matt. I'm on the boards of various nonprofits. I'm on the boards of various think tanks. I'm sure Matt's involved as well, whether it's an ISAF or the housing conference. All of us want to see a robust, stable, long-term, and financially feasible affordable housing program in New York. So to me, the exit strategy is long-term ownership. When the tax credit investor leaves the project, There's more equity created to the owner. And I think owning long-term multifamily in New York is a great exit strategy.
2: I had that conversation about how do you get a project started as a developer. The learning curve is so high in these deals that the folks that are coming into this business to develop are are people that are going to develop not just one project, but they're going to continue and develop numerous projects and and really committed to the field. So you find that most people that develop affordable housing are, are in it for the long haul.
1: And I think when you looked at the early iterations of affordable housing, when the 15-year compliance period of low-income housing tax credits started to come due, it was called year 15 problems. And I was working for the city, and the program was relatively new. So even though the Tax Credit Act passed in 86, you had a massive real estate recession. And so you really didn't see projects starting to get Developed using the tax credit program until about 88, 89. So by 2003, 2004, 2005, you had your first generation of projects that were coming out of this compliance. And guess what? We, as the city, decided we want to approach these owners and figure out a way to restructure the financing, restructure the debt, restructure the equity, and get more long term affordability. So for me, when I think about a long term outlook, I don't think about an exit, I I think about a long term outlook. Is that after 40 or 50 years? my buildings are going to need major capital repairs they're going to need a new equity investor and i'm going to have the opportunity to exchange what i think is a you know a financially feasible and sensible deal for more long-term affordability
0: in the case where a compliance period has expired and the owner would have the option to start putting individual apartments as they i guess as they become vacated into a market rate environment That's something that's possible, right? Absolutely. The new rent laws that were just passed in New York, is that impacting the ability to have that same outcome on these projects that were originally built as affordable housing? And is it having an impact on the ones that are legacy, they're already there, and is it different for the ones that are new? But Like I said, the
1: new projects, the term of the affordability is so long That I don't even think about current legislation because even if you're looking at a 30-year regulatory agreement, a 40, a 50, a 60, you have to assume that there'll be changes in the law in that period. As to the legacy assets, absolutely. I think you need to look at any rent-stabilized unit today as being almost impossible to destabilize. That's the way that there's no more vacancy decontrol, there's no more luxury decontrol. Some of the legacy assets that were above the $2,700 a month monthly rent, you'll still have the opportunity to deregulate that unit once there is a vacancy. However, in our industry, there are no units at $2,700 a month. So the reality is, yes, this tremendously impacts the legacy projects. And I think that was by intent. I
0: don't think that that's a mistake. So the question I have now is then, if if I have an affordable project, and what's the shortest term that an affordable project would be? In New York City? Yeah.
2: 30 years. Yeah.
0: Well, now it's 30 years, or was it always 30
1: years? No. Back in the day when we were doing middle-income projects in the early, late 90s and two thousand, there was a 15-year regulatory agreement for just purely middle-income right. projects. But
0: all of those have expired at this point. Absolutely. Right. Okay. When would you say the first 30-year commitment happened? What, 15 years ago?
2: Yeah, that's right. Some early early 2000s. 2000s. All right.
0: So it's not like any of this is going to expire anytime soon anyway. It's not like someone's sitting here right now and saying, hey, I'm going to have an expiration of my commitment You know, sometime between 2020 and 2025, and these new laws are going to impact me. Is that true? I think some of the early low-income tax credit deals
1: from like 2000- you know, may have had 25-year abatements uh, or from the late 90s. So, you know, probably not a lot. The way that it was structured and every year the city gets more inclined and the industry gets more inclined to provide
2: longer term and in many cases permanent affordability. It's very complicated on the back end because you have to look at not only the fact that regulatory agreements expiring, but you have a property tax abatement or exemption that usually is necessary to make the numbers work. The the units are typically registered, right? St- rent stabilized, so you're you're kind of set on your on your overall rent structure. And and you just you know you're in an environment that a lot of the debt for on the subsidy might balloon, so you have to figure out how to refinance it and take out the city agency. So we tell our clients that if you are going to do an affordable project, to expect that it's going to be an affordable project forever. There was a project that was built in
1: Brooklyn in 2004. I worked on it when I was with the city. I think it was called State Renaissance Plaza, built by a gentleman named John Frezza. It was a complicated project because it was built over the Hort Skimmerhorn station. And it was a 50-30-20. So 50% market rate, 30% mid-income, 20% low income. But I bring it up because the commercial was leased to a supermarket operator. And the operator named the supermarket. It was a one-off called Brooklyn Fair. Brooklyn Fair became this very popular supermarket and also included a restaurant in it. And the restaurant was the only three Michelin star restaurant in All of Brooklyn at the time it subsequently has moved to the city to 37th between 9th and 10th the supermarket still exists but the restaurants in the city and i bring this up because the 50% of the units that were dedicated to mid and low income are still in that program but what did happen by that development there was appreciation in the value of the commercial and when i was at the city the head of the housing development corporation who i work for emily Yusuf, used to say to me the affordable housing industry is like the marines we're the first on the beach and when you go to neighborhoods and when i was working for the city i used to do a ton of presentations to community boards in harlem about projects that were being done in harlem and now matt you and i can both say that affordable housing projects in harlem are few and far between uh, and the Bronx was very popular for the last 10, 12 years. And now with all of the excitement that's going on in the Bronx and opportunity zones, you know, we're starting to see land prices move away from us. So, you know, affordable housing is economic development. That's really the way to say it. It brings the retail. It brings the density. It brings a lot of things that pure market rate economics won't allow for.
2: And you, sometimes you see critics come along and they say, well, why, why are we putting our government dollars into housing projects? And really, it all boils down to that. It's really putting money into communities that still need a boost to change. It's been highly, highly successful throughout the country, transformational even.
0: Well, listeners, Matt, Eli, that's all we have time for today. But before we go, I have a question for both of you. If you had a magic wand, what would be the top wish that you would like to see occur for affordable housing?
2: Well, I think my top wish would be increased capacity. More dollars, more bond cap, more tax credits going into deals, and the ability to actually get more projects done. Eli? We need
1: to look at it as a broader concept throughout all of real estate development in New York, the cost of construction pricing, the cost of insurance, all of the costs that affect everything. So I'm of the belief that all development of rental housing helps affordability because like I said, the supply and demand paradigm is really what's overarching. So we need to figure out a way to bring the cost down where we can so that we can provide a product that makes sense financially. Because as I said earlier, and as Matt just echoed in terms of saying his magic wand request would be for there to be more subsidies, that's the issue, that you are dealing with a limited pool of subsidies for a huge need. And so we need to figure out ways to continue to, whether it's through the use of rezonings, to continue to figure out ways to bring the cost down of housing without simply just writing checks.
0: That was quite the bounty of knowledge, guys, for me and the Realty Speak listeners today. Eli, Matt, would you like to share how everyone can get in touch with you if they have additional questions? Eli? Sure. My email address is Eli, E-L-I, at joy
1: j-o-y con c-o-n the number one s as in sam t as in thomas.com joyconfirst.com
2: matt our website is uh goldsteinhall.com g-o-l-d-s-t-e-i-n hall h-a-l-l.com or email me at Hall at goldsteinhall.com eli where, where did the name joy come from it was the initials of uh
1: people's children in the company there was a jonathan i can tell you as somebody who spends most of my time dealing with construction problems there's not a lot of joy all the time
0: <laughs> I, <did> you... <laughs> that's a good so, one. used that one before yeah, so right. it's a, so it's not necessarily synonymous with joy no many times i've <laughs> thought of rebranding to frustrating construction <laughs> <laughs> that's very very funny and then uh you know uh matt goldstein hall
2: I mean, it's it should be Hall Goldstein, but that's another topic for yeah, a right. conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I was joking.
0: Yeah, great, great. Well, thank you, guys. I really, really appreciate you being here. And this was, again, stupendous.
2: It's been really great, Bill. Thanks very much for having me.
0: This was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me here. Well, there you have it. Everyone, thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. Please subscribe. You can do so right on the player. Just choose your favorite platform like iTunes or Google Play Music or search for us on your favorite podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices or Apple Podcasts for iPhone. And now there is an email subscription opt-in on the top of the episode page on the website. And please share our show with others. Just choose share on the player and choose your preferred social media platform. And of course, you can always get all the episodes and contact me directly via the website at BillWidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.